Today we're going to jump back in the Gospel of Luke and we're actually going to examine a text from Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. Think about this with me. If someone controls information and communication, then they're able to control the world. We serve a God who is sovereign over information. We serve a God who is sovereign over truth. Today we consider the sovereignty of God as the one who is Lord of truth. We'll begin reading with verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. In the context of this passage, the Lord had sent out 70 disciples and he had given them power and authority to do miraculous deeds. And we see in verse 17 their return and the report that they give and we see Jesus' response to that report. So beginning with verse 17. Then the seventy returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I tell you, that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and hear what you hear and have not heard it. So considering the setting of Jesus' response in these statements in 21 through 24, Satan has been dealt a terrific blow. The servants of Christ come back and they report that they have been casting out the minions of the enemy, Satan. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then the 70 are given authority to further trample on the forces of darkness. You notice Jesus says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. He's not talking about going over to Texas and having a snake stomping party. Serpents, scorpions there are referring to the workers of Satan, the demons. That's the whole context of this passage of Scripture. And as you can imagine, these men are excited. 
They have gone out, they've been able to do miraculous works, and they've been able to go out and cast out demons. Literally, seeing demon-possessed people, and they say to you, be gone, and that demon leaves those people. You can see they are pumped up, they're excited about the power that has been displayed through them. But what does Jesus say to them? In one sense, it's a mild rebuke. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He's saying you have an even greater reason for rejoicing than that the powers of the devil are subject to you in this matter. And that reason for rejoicing is that you are children of God and your names are written in heaven. We consider this for a moment by way of application. We can get caught up in this idea that the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me is to have some type of sensational experience where I experience a miracle or I experience some special power or moving. You know, there are a lot of people that are like that. And you think about even people that they uh, say that they have died and they've gone to heaven and they come back and they write a book and they start an organization and they start selling daily planners and, and memoirs and everything else. And much of that is based around that sensational experience. And oftentimes those ministries say, well, you can believe it's real because I've been there. And I say, I believe it's real because God says it's real. I don't need you to go there and come back to tell me that. Okay? But here's the thing. We don't need sensational experiences like that to have reason for rejoicing. To know that our names are written in heaven, that God has set His affection on us, that we have been redeemed by the work of Christ. There is no greater cause for rejoicing. And so we need to be filled with joy at what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Well, we're going to go back to that names written in heaven in just a moment as we go through and as we consider what Jesus has to say. But you can ask yourself this for a moment. Would you or would I be happier if we had a miraculous power such as casting out demons than we are with the knowledge that we are the children of God and our names are written in heaven? Three things that we will note in our text today. One is the lordship of the Father. And in particular, His lordship and sovereignty over information, over truth, over revelation. The Lordship of the Father. Then we will see the Lordship of the Son. And then we'll see the blessedness of the disciples. In verse 21, the Lordship of the Father. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. This is a beautiful picture. We call Jesus the man of sorrows, don't we? And for just cause, for right reasons. He came as the Son of God. He humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. His very creatures turned against him in a mob. They spat on him. They beat him. They mocked him. They tortured him. They nailed him to a cross. He faced the justice of God. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. 
Then we say, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. But think about this. We have a glimpse into the heart of Jesus here and this precious, precious snapshot of Jesus' life in which it says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. He rejoiced in the very depth of His being, a rejoicing that was empowered and driven by the very Holy Spirit of God. And what did He say in the midst of His joy? I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Your sight. He is rejoicing that His Father is sovereign over truth and over revelation. He rejoices here and He says, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. God is the Lord. He has authority and He has power. He has might and He has right. He has the might to do whatever He desires. And He has absolutely the right as the Sovereign of the universe to do whatever He pleases. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. We can paraphrase that by saying, God does whatever He wants to do and no one can stop Him. Because He's in the heavens. The heavens a place of power and authority. He is Lord both of heaven and of earth. It says in Daniel, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? No one can. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign of the universe. He is the Lord of information, of revelation, of truth. We talk about God being omnipotent. What does that mean? It means all-powerful, right? Omni and omnipotent. So we think of something being potent. You hear that in that word? Potence. Omni being everywhere or all. Speaking about all. We have a lot of omni words like he's omniscient. Omnipresent. He's omnipotent. What does that mean? I remember having a, a chat room discussion with a, an agnostic. and It was interesting. This was back a decade ago or so. And he helped me understand my theology. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever had an unbeliever help you understand your theology? <laughs> he was a very intelligent man. I think he lived over in England. And I never, I never knew his real name. Everybody had a, a chat name. And I'm discussing things with him. And, and he asked me about this idea of God being all-powerful. And then he kind of walked through it with me a little bit. Because there's that question, well, if God's all-powerful, does that mean he can do everything, absolutely everything? Well, the answer to that is, well, no. Of course he can do absolutely everything. The scriptures say clearly God cannot lie. There are many things that God cannot do because 
he will not do them because they're in contradiction to his very good character and nature. Right? So what does it mean that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful? Here's what it means in a nutshell. God has the power to do absolutely everything that he wants to do. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115, verse 3. He does whatever he pleases. From his seat of authority and power in the heavens, he does whatever he wants to do. Now, does he ever want to do evil? No, he cannot want to do evil because he is all good. There is no sin in him. So his omnipotence and his lordship means that he always does and he does exactly what he wants to do. And he has the power to accomplish what he wants to do. And ultimately, everything that he desires will be accomplished in his sovereign plan. In his sovereign plan, he allows evil to take place for a time to fulfill his sovereign purpose. But his sovereign purpose will be completed. But notice this, not only does Jesus acknowledge and rejoice that he is Lord, that he is his sovereign But he says, Father, Father, that the one who is the sovereign over all the universe, the one of whom it says in the scriptures that he has to humble himself to behold even the things in the heavens. From Psalm 113, he has to humble himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. It says, from the very mouth of Jesus, he is Father. He is Father. So this dread sovereign is a compassionate Father. He's an infinitely loving Father to the Son and to all those to whom the Son reveals the Father. So the divine blend is that He is Lord over all realms and He's the loving Heavenly Father. And what does Jesus rejoice over here? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. What is he rejoicing over? He is rejoicing over God sovereignly hiding truth from some people and revealing it to other people. I didn't say it, Jesus did. Jesus rejoices here that God his Father sovereignly hides some truths from some people and reveals those truths to other people. And what truth is Jesus rejoicing that the Father has hidden and revealed? It is the saving knowledge of who the Son is. That's the context here. Because Jesus had just said in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus is saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden the saving knowledge of who I am and what I'm here to accomplish from one group of people, but you have revealed it to another group of people saying, Father, you are absolutely sovereign over saving truth. You hide truth from some and you reveal it to others. 
We're going to look at a lot of scriptures today to show this isn't an isolated idea and it's not just Pastor Ryan kind of taking one text and maybe twisting it a little bit. But this is throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures, God is sovereign over salvation. Because God is sovereign over revealing truth to whomever he will. So God hides truth from some. His lordship over heaven and earth means that he hides the meaning, significance, and understanding of truths from anyone he wants to. Look at Luke 8 and verse 10. And as we consider this, ask yourself a question for a minute. What was the purpose of the parables? Are the parables of Jesus like a pastoral illustration? You know, if I give an illustration, if I stand up here and I talk about, you know, uh, if I talk about eggs and rabbits and trees and birds and whatever else, and I'm saying, you know, things like combustion engine and it does this, that, or the other, or gasoline and you compress it to the point where it ignites and all this, I'm doing that to help explain something and make it more clear, Right? Is that why Jesus spoke in parables? And he talked about a sower going forth to sow seed. And he talked about a woman finding you know, a, a lost coin and a man finding a treasure in a field. Is that why Jesus did that? Did he do it to make the meaning clear to everyone that was listening? Absolutely not. He says that he did not give them for that purpose. Look at this from Luke 8 and verse 10. The context is his disciples in verse 9 asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? Jesus says, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables. The rest, those who don't know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. There's a parallel passage where Jesus says very clearly again the same idea. The parables are given to reveal truth to God's people and to shroud the truth or hide the truth from those who are not. So that those who are not will not understand the truth, even though they hear it with their ears. That's the teaching of Scripture. God is sovereign over information. Look at John 9. In verse 39. And this is at the end of the account of the man who was born blind and Jesus heals him, gives him sight. And notice this in in verse 35. Let's start with 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. They cast out the man who was born blind from the synagogue because he was simply willing to say, Hey, I was born blind and this man healed me. That's what I know. And they did not receive him because... He testified of Jesus. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when he had found him, Jesus seeks him out. When he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? 
He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Do you believe in the Son of God? There the Son of God stands before him and he says, Who is he? You tell me who he is. I want to believe in him. (laughs) At this point, there's one sense in which he is blind, isn't there? Because he doesn't know who Jesus is. And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who's talking with him. He's right in front of you, buddy. (laughs) Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see. Who's that? That's the man that was born blind. He did not see. He said, Lord, show me who the Son of God is, and I'll believe in him. He did not see, but Jesus had come that those who didn't see, like that man, would be able to see. Lord, I believe. And that those who see may be made blind. Who could see? It was the people that cast him out of the synagogue, the religious leaders. They were the ones who could see. Yes, we see all, they said. We know all. No, we're not sinners like the rest of those people. We're not unrighteous filth. We were not born blind because of sin. But yet they are blind spiritually. And Jesus did not come to give them sight. He said specifically to them, those that are well don't need a physician. You guys think that you're well, but you're not. And the old saying is true. Show me a sinner, I'll show you someone who's saved. Someone who truly, righteously knows that they're a sinner. They don't blame anyone. They don't excuse their sin. And they have a knowledge of who God is. There's hope for that person. There's not hope for someone as long as they remain in an arrogant, proud attitude of not bowing before the Lord of heaven and earth, confessing their sin. But, but notice, what did Jesus say there? He said that he had come to reveal and to hide truth. He hid the understanding The understanding of who Christ was was hidden from the majority of the Jewish leaders who were arrogant, proud, and oppressed others. And the scriptures say that this was done lest they be saved. Look at Luke chapter 5, 31 and 32. And consider this for a moment, folks. We're talking about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God over salvation, the lordship of Christ. And we haven't even left the Gospels yet. We haven't even begun to examine the Apostle Paul's writings inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even in the very Gospels, these truths are laid throughout. What did I say? Luke 5, 31 and 32. Levi gives a great feast. He invites tax collectors and others. Jesus attends that feast. The scribes and Pharisees complained against the disciples of Jesus, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
I have not come to call the righteous. He is looking at them and he's saying, I have not come to call you. Because they were the self-righteous, weren't they? I've come to call sinners to repentance. They knew what Jesus was talking about. Why do you think they hated him? Why do you think they wanted to kill him? Why do you think they were trying to stone him all the time? Why do you think people were trying to shove him off a cliff? They knew what he was talking about. Think he was challenging them? But yet the truth was hidden from him. And so how did they respond? Not in humility, bowing before him and embracing him. But in anger and animosity, trying to throw him off a cliff. Nail him to a cross. Whatever it took to get him out of the way. Consider this, my friends. I know that I know this is a subject that we probably all have wrestled with. We've wrestled with this. The sovereignty of God in salvation. The sovereignty of God over information. Does God hide truths from some people so that they absolutely cannot embrace it? Let me propose that the very cross of Christ is express evidence in the scriptures that God is sovereign over revelation, over truth, over information. Think, think with me here. Think about the cross. Had it been prophesied that Jesus would go to the cross? Had it been prophesied in express detail, multiple events that would take place during the life of Christ and during the crucifixion of Christ? Who spoke those words, inspired those words, said that those prophecies were written down, some of them thousands of years before they took place? God did. God's reputation as a truth teller was on the line that every word of those prophecies would take place in their own time and space, right? Think about all that God had to do to see that even one prophecy would be fulfilled. He prophesied, for instance, that the Messiah would be born in a town called Bethlehem. That was just multiple hundred years before Bethlehem of the time of Christ, when Christ was born. Answer me this. Have cities completely gone out of existence? Have cities completely disappeared or had name changes or whatever? You bet they had. You bet they have. There have been some cities that overnight, literally, boom, Pompeii, right? There's this little hill called Vesuvius, and boom, boom, Pompeii. It's gone. The city is wiped out. Think of everything that God had to control sovereignly by His sovereign hand to see that even Bethlehem would still exist hundreds of years later after that prophecy. If there's no Bethlehem, there was no fulfillment of prophecy. God had to do that just with one prophecy. Think about everything that he had to control. He had to control information all the way down the line. Now think about this with me. Think about this for a moment. What would have happened if Pilate had believed in Jesus truly? He wouldn't have gone to the cross. Jesus would not have gone to the cross. If Pilate embraced who Jesus truly was and had been saved, then Jesus would not have been gone to the cross. There was one man there that could have kept Jesus from going to the cross, 
Hypothetically. But there was one God who said Jesus will go to the cross, so Pilate will not believe. God didn't leave that up to chance, folks. It's also the case, right, that the Pharisees, what if the Pharisees, the majority of the Pharisees had embraced who Jesus was and believed in him? They wouldn't have schemed for his death. Now let's look at some scriptures in the book of Acts regarding the cross and God's sovereignty over saving information. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. These truths are, the scriptures are filled with these truths, absolutely filled with these truths. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. We serve a sovereign God. Let's start with verse 22. Peter is preaching, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are the words of God. In verse 22, men of Israel on the day of Pentecost hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to God, For by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which he did through him in our midst, in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Was it any accident that Jesus went to the cross? It was the express purpose of God himself. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Were they still responsible for their wicked deeds? Absolutely. Because they did exactly what they wanted to do. They did exactly what they wanted to do. But notice it was God's determined purpose. And if they hadn't chosen to crucify Christ because they believed in Christ, then God's purpose wouldn't have been fulfilled. If Pilate had believed Christ and been saved, then God's purpose wouldn't be fulfilled. God hid truth from some wise and prudent people in the eyes of the world. And he revealed it to some foolish and simple people, babes, in the eyes of the world. Now consider Acts chapter 3 and verse 17 and 18. Speaking about the crucifixion of Christ. Notice this. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Notice that. He says, you did it in ignorance. And we'll look at a passage of scripture in just a moment. It says that if they had known who Jesus was, they would not have crucified him. They did it in ignorance. If they had known, they would not have crucified him. God had a vested interest in seeing that they did not know. Just see if that agrees with the scriptures. I'm simply trying to be faithful to the word of God. To be faithful to the word of God. Look at chapter 4 and verse 23. The apostles are forbidden to preach in Jesus' name. They defy that order and say we ought to obey God rather than men. They're punished. 
and verse 23 of chapter 4, being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to him. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David had said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Notice this in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the people of Israel gathered together against Jesus and it was to do what God wanted them to do. That's what's being said. To do God's purpose. If they had believed on Jesus and had accepted Him as the Messiah, they would not have sent Him to the cross. So there's one sense in which, yeah, we wrestle with this. We wrestle with this. But there's a sense in which, very clearly, in God's sovereignness overall, He wanted Jesus to go to the cross. He wanted Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus had to be crucified. This was prophesied. God had to hide the truth of who Jesus was from some to assure that the prophecies and the sovereign decree take place. If the Jewish leaders had received Christ, they would not have schemed for his death. If they had not schemed for his death, then God's sovereign plan from before the world was even created would have failed. If God's plan had failed, then he would not be the omnipotent Lord of heaven and earth and all people from Adam and Eve to the last baby born on the face of the earth would be damned to hell. Because without the cross, no one could be saved. No one could be saved. Jesus had to die at the hands of his creatures to be the substitute for the sin of God's chosen people. So God sovereignly hid the truth from some to accomplish his purpose. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Scriptures. So in this, we can see, though, the answer to the problem of evil, can't we? You know, the problem of evil, the stickiest wicket in the philosophical debates against Christianity. The problem of evil, well, how can there be an all-loving God who is all-powerful and yet there be evil in the world. At the most experiential, emotional level, the answer to that is the cross. Was not the cross and what took place there the most wicked atrocity that ever occurred on the face of the earth? The very Son of God, murdered by His own creatures, the greatest atrocity on the face of the earth in all of human history from the time of Adam and Eve till the end of the ages was the murder of Jesus Christ. But yet in that God had the most glorious, loving, redemptive purpose imaginable in that it was the only way 
for wicked sinners to be saved was for the substitutionary work of His Son to take place. And so if someone is wrestling with how can there be a good God, a loving God who is all-powerful and yet there be sin in the world, point to the cross and say, there is God. And the second person of the Trinity hanging upon that cross. God did not hold Himself aloof from our sufferings. He entered our world. And the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, hung upon that cross. But consider this question for just a moment. How does God most often hide truth? Okay, we're looking at the Scriptures, and it seems clear from the Scriptures to me, we've looked at multiple passages already, God hides truth from some people and He reveals it to others. That's about as clear as you can get from those statements that we've looked at. What is the way that God most often hides truth? I believe it is that He simply does not reveal truth. You know, it's possible to hide something from someone by simply not telling them where it is. Right? You can you you don't you don't necessarily have to deliberately affect or influence someone if they don't know where something is, you simply don't tell them where it is. And then they can't find it. One uh, perhaps analogy that might help, and uh, this isn't a parable, by the way, so I'm not God. Think about something that's written in code. And someone doesn't have the key to crack the code, but you have the key. You can hide the meaning of what's written there right before their very eyes simply by not giving them the key to the code, right? You don't even you don't even have to take the code book and go bury it in the backyard so that they can't find it. All you have to do is not give them the key and then they can't understand the code. Here's how God most often reveals or hides truth. He most often hides truth by simply not revealing it to blind people. By not opening their eyes so that they can see. Because here's the reality. Every person born into the world is born spiritually blind. They're not born able to comprehend and understand the things of God. It takes the miracle of God through salvation before people can comprehend the things of God. Can I support that from Scripture? Yes. If if you want theological terminology, we call this the doctrine of total depravity. The people are depraved. They are unable in their sinful, wicked state to be able to comprehend the things of God. That's one aspect of the concept of total depravity. But think about this for just a moment. Look over at uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, 
and chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is pointing out that he didn't come with the great skills of the orators of day in the Greco-Roman Empire. He didn't come with the flowery speech and all the oracle devices, but he came with wisdom in a biblical sense. Because he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Then he goes on and he says, notice this in verse 6, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Notice this in verse 8. I made reference to this. Circle it, underline it. Which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. Who reveals them? God reveals them. Who can hide truth? God can. How? By not revealing truth. He has to reveal truth to people for them to be able to truly grasp, understand the significance of it in a saving way. God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teach, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual. Notice this in verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are foolish to him. And notice the emphaticness of this next statement. Nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot know the things of God. Nor can he know them. He doesn't know them. Nor can he know them. Who's the natural man? That's the man who has not been saved by God. It's the man who has not been regenerated, given spiritual life by God and put into a right relationship with God. It says the natural man cannot. It's not that he won't, although that's true also, but it's not just that he won't, it is that he cannot. He cannot. So what has to take place for him to be able to? He has to go into an entirely different category. He has to become something else. He has to become a spiritual man before he can even understand the things of the Spirit of God. He's a natural man. The scripture also uses the word dead. He's a dead man. What has to happen before a dead man can have knowledge, can talk, can think, can reason, can learn. He's got to be alive. The natural man is spiritually dead. And you know, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, now he is made alive. Even Christians used to be dead in their trespasses and sins. You've got to go from being natural, carnal, fleshly, dead, 
to becoming spiritual, living, alive, before you can even understand the things of God. What does this mean? It means you can't have faith until God makes you alive. What comes first? Faith in God and then you are regenerated? Or being regenerated and then having faith? This says that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. That includes things like believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. They can't, they can't, they can't accept that until God reveals it to them. So how does God most often hide truth? By simply not revealing it. How was it that God hid the truth of who Jesus was and his works, even though he was right in front of their eyes, fulfilling scripture in front of them, and they knew the scriptures, they were the teachers of the law? God didn't reveal to them in a saving way by giving them a new heart, regenerating them, making them a spiritual person. And so they naturally rejected him. They naturally rejected him. These are the teachings of the scripture. It says in um, Romans 8, Romans 8 we have two people again contrasted. The carnal or the fleshly one and then the spiritual one. And the categories there are speaking again about those who are regenerated, who are saved, and those who are lost. It's very clear from the context of Romans 8 that that's what's being spoken of. But notice this. The beginning of the chapter saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he goes on for what the law could not do in verse 3, that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned it in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Notice this, because the carnal mind the mind of the person who has not been saved. That's the two categories again. The saved and the lost. That's what's being spoken of here. Those who are condemned and those who are no longer condemned. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Notice again he's saying they don't obey God's law and they can't obey God's law. Is there any other interpretation of this that matches the testimony of Scripture in all these texts in the context? I, I don't. I don't see that it can be. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. The carnal man cannot obey the law of God. How does God most often hide truth? Simply by not revealing it. Simply by not opening the eyes spiritually so people can see. This is the God of the Scriptures. And, and I do realize with this subject, it's an emotionally charged subject. But my appeal is this. If someone is coming at it from the perspective of, 
I think that would make God a monster, and I don't see how God could be like that. I simply ask this, is your view of God based on what his word teaches, or is it based on your own reactions and your own emotions to truths like this? Because ultimately, we have to look to his scriptures to know who he is and what he does. And so, it was so interesting. I was over at a brother's house one day, and he had some relatives he wanted me to meet, and the subject turned to the sovereignty of God and salvation. And I took, I took him to Romans chapter 9, where it says in verse 12 and 13, it was said to her, The older shall serve the, lo- the younger, as it is written, God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And you know what they said? Well, that would make God unrighteous. I said, keep reading. God knew you would say that. (laughs) Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. And then the example of Pharaoh is given. It says he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And then the next question was, well, how could he find fault with anyone? I said, you know what? God knew that you were going to ask that. Keep reading. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? (laughs) Uh, Bodhi Bauckham puts it this way, paraphrasing that text. If you say, Well, if God sees to it that people do not know him and seek the truth and he sees to it that things happen like Jesus goes to the cross because he hides the truth so that those people could not believe then how could God find fault with them and say they sinned and did wicked and here's Wody Bauckham's paraphrase of this passage and it's right on who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to even question God? You have no right to question the Almighty. He created. And just like a potter can make one pot that is a pot that people will go and squat on. I mean, because that's what they had back then. They didn't have commodes. They had pots. And we call it a pot today, right? Go sit on the pot. When it talks about dishonor and creating one for dishonor and one for honor, it's talking about creating pots for that kind of use compared to creating vessels that would go in a temple and would be sacred. It's saying a potter will do that and God has every right because he's the creator of the universe to do exactly that. That's what this teaches. I'm not making this up. I don't think I would have made it up. This is what God says. This is what God says. So, Jesus rejoices there 
And he rejoices that his father is the Lord of heaven and earth and that he has that he has hidden the truth from some and revealed it to others. That he's hidden the truth from some and revealed it to others. He's hidden it from the wise and the prudent, the people that believe themselves to be wise, the Pharisees, who stuck up their noses and looked down on everybody else. And he reveals it to babes, the disciples, the fishermen, the uneducated folk. You realize Jesus wasn't looking for a few good men when he chose his disciples. He was looking for a few men that he would make good. So that the power displayed in them would be more apparent. You know, there's that passage of scripture which speaks about vessels in the sense of being a good vessel for the glory of God. You realize we're all sinners, we're all crack pots. We're cracked pots. We're flawed. Right? Praise God. Because he can shine out through the cracks. So rather than people seeing our power, people can see the power of God. Our job is to be a good crackpot. And people call you a crackpot. That's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the beginning of it. People say it is foolishness to believe in some dead guy that lived 2,000 years ago. And to say he's alive right now. And to follow after him. It's foolishness to the world, but to us who are saved it is glory because we know he lives right we know he lives and notice this for a moment what is the reason that Jesus attributes to God for hiding and revealing truth look look at the text if you're there again Luke 10 verse 21 Jesus gives us a glimpse of God's reason for hiding and revealing truth here. Do you have eyes on the text? Are you you back there? Are you with me? Verse 21, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and revealed them to babes. Now, what reason? Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Because you wanted to. Because you wanted to. It's good for you to do this. That's, that's the truth. That's the truth. Consider this for just a moment. You realize the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. If you believe in the Bible at all, you have to believe in election. You can't say, oh no, I don't believe in election at all. Well, then you're going to have to tear passages out of your Bible. Because the Bible says that there is a group of people called the elect. Jesus says that even the elect would be deceived if it were possible. 
And then you have passages where it says God elected or chose. And the word election means to choose. What, what do we do if we have an election in this nation? We go and we choose a leader, right? The word election means to choose. That's at the very root of the word. You have to believe in the doctrine of election if you're going to believe in the Bible because election is a biblical word. Just like justification is a biblical word. Just like redemption is a biblical word. Election is a biblical word. Well, people who are being honest with the text will say, okay, the Bible teaches election. And what election means is that there is a group of people who are God's chosen ones who will be saved. And the rest will not. There are clear distinctions made. The elect and the non-elect in the scriptures. Okay? Well, there are two different main camps that approach this. The Arminian camp and what is commonly called Calvinism. The Arminian camp will say, yes, election is true, but it's conditional. It's conditional. That means, yes, God chose some people, but it was based on certain conditions being fulfilled. And what do they say those conditions are? You may be familiar with with this argumentation. They say, well, the condition is that God only chose people based on the fact that he knew that they would choose him. And so he just simply locks their sovereign choice in. You realize that view says that man is sovereign over choosing God. Not that God is sovereign, but that man is sovereign. Because if the person doesn't choose God, then God can't choose them. That's what that view says. That the person has to to choose God. So that view says that God looks down through the corridors of time and he sees those who would choose him. And then he chooses them based on their goodness. Now, they won't put it in that terminology. But it really, ultimately, it's based on their goodness of desiring to do that which is good and to choose him. And then he locks them in. I simply ask this question. Show me that in the Bible, please. Whenever we see reasons given for God's choosing some, it is always from the perspective of God's sovereign good pleasure and his choice, his prerogative, his will, and he does it because he wants to. Never do we see the scriptures say that God chose anyone because of what they would do. As a matter of fact, in Romans 9, it says that the two, Jacob and Esau, before they were even born, before they had done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God in election would stand. God says, Jacob I have chosen, I have loved, Esau I have hated. <laughs> and God in that passage says, that he says he will get, show mercy on whom he will show mercy. In our passage here, Jesus says, because it was good in your sight. In Ephesians, in chapter 1, it says because it was the good pleasure of his will. You can look at that sometime as well. So what I would propose is that everywhere we see reasons given for God's choosing, for God's revealing saving truth to some, it's always from the perspective of God's good pleasure, his will, never from the perspective of man's actions or any perceived goodness in man. 
And the scriptures say that it's not of he who wills or of he who runs, but it's God who shows mercy. Right? Well, one, one passage, because here's what is usually said, and I want to try and correctly represent those with whom I disagree, and I emphatically disagree, I might add, but I do strongly disagree. Romans chapter 8, the end of Romans chapter 8. It says this in verse 28 and then verse 29. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And notice this. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So here's how the argument goes. Well, see, it says there that the ones that he foreknew would be predestined. So that's teaching that God knew in advance that they would choose him, and those are the ones that he predestined. And predestined means their destination was determined pre or in advance, right? You see that in the word predestined. But wait a minute. Think about this. Is it a, a who or a what that God foreknows? Is it a whom or a what that God pre-knows? According to the text, what does it say? Does it say that God foreknew what they would do and so he predestined them? No, it says that he predestined a whom. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. So here's what I would propose. Since it's talking about a whom and not a what. Work with me here. I know we've been going for a while. Whoms and whats and everything else. Like what? What are we talking about? It's time for lunch. Work with me here. Whom and what? Whom and what? The Armenian view says that God predestined people based on his foreknowing that they would choose him. That would mean that they believe that it's a, it's a what. That they say that this passage is teaching that God knew what certain people would do and then he predestined them based on what they would do. But notice this doesn't say that God foreknew what someone would do. It says that he foreknew a group of people. A whom? So then we have to ask, well, what does this word foreknow mean in the Greek? What does it mean in the original language? And if we want to, I mean, if we want to make it really simple, does it, does it say expressly those that God knew would choose him in advance, he predestined? It doesn't say that, does it? Okay, so we can rule that out as an express statement. The word foreknow there means to know in advance. Who did he know in advance? A group of people. Not their actions. A group of people. That's what this is saying. Because you know what that means? It means that God in advance set his affection on a group of people that he would know them in a saving way, in a saving relationship. And those people that he in advance set his affection on, he predestined to salvation. That's what, that's what this is teaching. 
The word no in the Bible. The word no can be used to speak of a husband and a wife and their intimate relation with one another, right? Adam knew his wife. So that word there has a whole lot more of a connotation than just a head knowledge. Than just knowing some facts. Okay? It's talking about the fact that God, in advance, determined to have a saving relationship with a group of people. And he predestined those to salvation. And then all those other passages we see very clearly that he did that because that was his good pleasure. It's because he wanted to. And that's glorious. Because otherwise we're all damned. Because how many people seek after God? Romans chapter 3. How many people seek after God? How many people does God look down upon from the heavens and find seeking Him? There are none that seek after God. They have all gone astray. That's what the Scriptures say. Here's the reality. In one sense, work with me here. Don't, don't just keep the stones in the bags and the purses until you hear me out on this one, okay? There's one sense in which God doesn't make anyone do anything they don't want to do. There's one sense in which God does not force anyone to sin. But the glorious thing is He gives some people the desire to want to do that which they ought to do. He makes His people willing in the day of His power, the Scriptures say. He didn't have to force the Pharisees to hate Jesus. They did exactly what they wanted to do. He didn't have to force Pilate to put Jesus unjustly on that cross. Pilate did ultimately exactly what he truly, finally determined he wanted to do. So God is still sovereign and man is still responsible for his actions. But God's choosing of people and revealing truth to them in time and space is not based on what they would do. The scriptures militate against that. The scriptures are emphatic that it's God, His mercy, His grace. And that's glorious because none of us would choose Him, none of us would believe unless He set His affection on us first. Well, in Luke chapter 10. I'm not going to say in conclusion. I had a speech professor tell me, you never say in conclusion, because you know what happens when you say in conclusion? Everybody starts putting their papers up and they start closing everything down and they're like, okay, we're done now. I don't have to pay attention anymore. (laughs) I know. I'm not going to preach it long. I promise, brother. I promise. I know. I know. I'm going to wrap it up very, very quickly. Uh, but uh, you, catch yourself next time. If, you, if, you, if you're listening to something, a preacher, a teacher, or you're sitting listening to a lecture or something, they say, in conclusion, or now to summarize, watch how you respond to that. Uh, I get to watch you. It's fun. You guys get to watch me. I get to watch you. 
In Luke 10.22, Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Notice this. Notice it uses the word know there. Is that talking about head knowledge? No, that's talking about intimate saving relationship. That's talking about grasping the significance of who Jesus is and having a right relationship with him because you submit to the truth of who he is and believe in who he really is. So who can believe? The scriptures say, John 3.16 is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is anything that I'm saying in opposition to that? No, now ask yourself this question. Who can believe? That's what we've been talking about. Who can believe? That scripture says that if you believe, you will be saved. And that is absolutely true. But the question is, who can believe? We've already seen the one to whom God reveals that truth. The one who is the elect of God. Not based on anything that they would do, but based on God's good pleasure and His good will. The one who has made a spiritual man rather than being a natural man. Notice this. This is emphatic. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Who the Father is except the Son. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. It says the only person that will know... God in a saving way is the one that the Son wants to know God. That's what this says. Is there any other reasonable interpretation of this? I, I know of none. This is saying, Jesus is saying emphatically, clearly, if I want someone to know God, they will know God. If I do not want someone to know God, they will not know God because I have to reveal them. Now, we ask this question. Does Jesus want everyone to know God in a saving way? If he did, everyone would. In what, at one level here. If he did, everyone would. Because notice what he says. No one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Notice it's saying that the person the Son desires to reveal the Father to, will know the Father. That person will know the Father. So at the level of God's sovereign will, the level of God's sovereign will, the people that God desires to know the truth will know the truth and they will be saved. They will be saved. And the glory is, no one would be saved otherwise. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Some say, well, God draws everybody. But it says, the one who is drawn will be raised up. That's speaking about the resurrection of the just. 
and the scriptures say that there is a hell and that there are people who are lost. So, not all are drawn, but the ones who are drawn will be saved. They will be saved. The blessedness of the disciples. Then he says, notice he turns to his disciples and says privately, all of this Jesus has been publicly proclaiming about the sovereignty of God. This wasn't a private conversation just for certain people. Jesus is preaching this publicly. Publicly. Some churches say, yeah, we hold to the sovereignty of God, but we just don't talk about that when we're out in public. That's not what Jesus did. (laughs) Then he takes the disciples aside privately and says, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. He takes them aside and said, you guys are blessed. You're under favor with God. You're happy as a result of being under favor with God because He has revealed to you these things. And there were prophets and kings through the ages studying the Scriptures and longed to see this day. You guys are blessed, happy, because God has revealed it to you and you can see it. So here's our application. Are you happy that God has revealed Christ to you? Do you rejoice in that? But here's the main point of application. I want every every one of you to hear me right now. I know there I know there's lunch over there. I know we've been going for a while, but listen to me carefully. Listen to me. Hear me. Hear me. This passage that we looked at is the only place in all of the scriptures where it says Jesus rejoiced. This is the only place in all of the scriptures where it expressly says Jesus rejoiced. What was he rejoicing about? He was rejoicing about what we just study. Do you delight in the fact that God is sovereign over revelation, information, and truth, and that He hides the truth from some and reveals it to others? Do you delight in that? Jesus did. And He delighted in it so much that He stood up and He preached it publicly. He says, Father, praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed, you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes, because it was good in your sight. Do you delight and do you rejoice in the sovereignty of God? If so, you're in good company. Because Jesus did. Father, help us to delight in these truths. Help us not to be ashamed of these things. Why would we be ashamed of that which Jesus rejoiced over? Your sovereignty. 
Because we know our wretchedness, Father. If we are honest, we know our wretchedness. There's no goodness in us. We do not deserve to have the truth revealed to us. But you have revealed saving truth to some. And we praise you for that. I pray. I pray that every person in here can praise you. That you are sovereign over information. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing number 403 in our blue hymnals. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Number 403. It's the sovereign grace of God. The sovereign grace of God. Number 403.
Father, we praise you because there is nothing that we could have done to save our guilty souls. Not even to choose you. Except that you had chosen us first. That you had set your love on us first. And that you had given us the ability to see, eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. We praise you for your sovereign grace. And we thank you for this day that you have brought to us. We pray that you'll bless the rest of our time together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We will have a time for a third service, but we'll wait and start that at 2.20, so we have plenty of time for lunch.